Good evening and welcome to yet another episode of League Rugby Banter. This is a podcast about rugby. Um, and for the first time in the last couple of weeks, we can be smiling. Um, I'm joined by a very smiley Phil after this very impressive impressive South African demolition of Italy. Um, something that the Australians couldn't manage. Um, Phil, how did that set the tone for the rest of your weekend? Yeah, it was good. I think not just the victory of Italy, which like we said last week, we needed and not just expected but really you know that was the bare minimum but also the manner of the victory also was just really nice being able to score that many tries and looking comfortable even though leaking a few more than we would like i think um yeah but we'll get into the match later but it put a smile on my face then and i've still got a smile on my face now as you say yeah no it was nice to see us you know properly put a team away but i don't think we scored that many points against a team probably since we played italy in the world cup uh, it's been a been a long time since we've really cleaned someone up. Um, even though you know the two warm-up tests against Georgia before the Lions tour weren't massive scores, I don't think, or I don't recall at least. Um, so yeah, it was very good to see from that perspective. Um, yeah, that, that we do still have that ruthless you know demolition in, uh, instinct when we want it. Um, so without further ado, we're going to jump straight in. Got a lot on the agenda um, to cover for. For this week, um, starting off with the World Rugby Awards um, that came out on Sunday night. Um, the major winners uh, <clears throat> in the breakthrough play was Andrew Caputso, which you know I don't think anyone was too surprised about given the shortlist. Um, I think you know based on the, the Saturday's matches, Fred uh, Lawrence definitely still was putting his hands up. Um, but, you know, he wasn't on the shortlist, so it wasn't really allowed. Um, the, the women's breakthrough player was... Um, Ruby Tui? Ruby Tui, yeah. Um, senior men's player of the year was Josh Van Fleer, that not quite South African-born Irishman, um, which is interesting. Like, I think, you know, given he, he wasn't even not a, a lion a year ago, um, and now to be called the best player in the world is an, an interesting outcome. I'm not sure if that reflects really well on him and his improvement or if it just reflects that no one's really stood out tremendously in the last 12 months. I mean, I would say I think there are some people that potentially had better seasons that weren't on the list and therefore weren't allowed to to win. Um, but, yeah, what was your take on, on his winning that award? Yeah, I think you, you touched on it there. The big exclusions who weren't nominated. So out of the nominated players, I think... Um, He's a relatively worthy winner. I think mostly from the the tour against the All Blacks and managing to put those performances together, being such a big part of that island team. Um, So I think for me, and I think the general consensus is Ardi Sabir and Evan Etzabeth were probably should have been on that list and both of them would have been at least a lot closer to him than some of the other nominees if not above in terms of my personal ranking so yeah do you agree with those two or is anyone else yeah i mean i think that's a fairly universal opinion um there was obviously a lot of outcry when they didn't get nominated you know it's the fact that someone like Lukanya Am got on got nominated you know is as weird as Sam Karevi got nominated last year. like yes they both had very influential matches but they only played a handful of matches which you, know, you shouldn't really allow you to be counted for for the full season um you know then you've got players like Dupont who really you know yes they played well but they weren't up to the standards that they normally have set um and I wouldn't say that 
2022 specifically, Depont has been one of the best players in the world. Yeah. So it was it was a weird year. I mean, again, apart from Sevilla and Etzebeth, I don't think anyone really stood out and shone as a consistently excellent player. Um, but I think we you know we can expand on that, that these discussions um, now as we go through the World Rugby Team of the Year, um, and we can suggest our alternatives. There are some interesting picks there as well. Um, most notably that Etzebeth and Sevilla aren't included. But yeah. just to go through it very quickly. Uh, front row is Genge, Marks and Furlong. Locks are Tigbird and Sam Whitelock. Loose forwards are Matera, Van der Fleer and Aldrit. In your back line, you've got Antoine Dupont and Johnny Sexton and Bahar, Damon Delende and Lucanya Am making a full springbok midfield. And then you've got Corabetti, Will Jordan and Freddie Stewart at the back. Um, we've done a quick run through of our alternatives. Um, not just saying who we should pick, but at least who was the, the kind of bubbling under players. Um, so Phil, do you want to take us through the front row there? Yeah, so... Um, Lucid, like Ellis Genge, he's been decent, but I don't think either for Antor, I we we said he hasn't blown us away. He hasn't done enough to really stick his hand up very much. But at the same time, the alternatives are not also... We don't think anyone was really harshly done by, but our alternative would be Cyril Dye for that. Um, for France, he's just been solid and possibly, yeah, better than Genge. For Hooker, bit tough, but Marks definitely... You know, very, very good year and probably his best year as a Springbok so far. Uh, I guess bubbling underplayers for this one would be Takiyahu, who had a really breakthrough year for the All Blacks, and then March on from France as well. Uh, and then Tighthead, Furlong was good, um, probably a worthy a worthy pick there. Um, some of our alternate, I mean, we mentioned Malherber, who's been just as solid and as good as he's always been. And other than that, yeah, there haven't really been anyone else. So Malherba for us makes it as the bubbling under player. Yeah, I think that that kind of summarizes nicely. My issue with these types of um, teams, and it's kind of reflected in the, the Genge and the Furlong pick, that you know they they pick players that are highlight players. And, you know, so Furlong pass does one you know twenty meter skip pass every six games, and suddenly he's the greatest fly off that's playing in the front row. And Genge, you know, can bounce on it really. And suddenly he's the best looser prop in the world. And you're like, yeah, but how many scrums penalties have they won? And, you know, that's why having a guy like um, uh, Sirobai and Malherb, I think, should be in the team. Because you know, they, at the end of the day, are performing their primary role better than anyone else. Um, and, you know, that's why I have less issue with Furlong being there. Whereas Genge is really not a dominant scrummager. And I think we'll, we'll see that this weekend when he comes up against Malherb. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, I think we can... Sorry, go? Yeah, I mean, I, I always struggle to know, the, like, how good the English scrum is. Like, when I think of the top scrums, they're not one of them. But sometimes, like, they manage to hold their own or even look like they're a little bit dominant. But definitely outside of, like, Springboks and Ireland and France, probably, and even New Zealand, so maybe fifth best, I would say. Yeah, and if you have the fifth best front row, you can't be in the team of the year, uh, in my opinion. But yeah, we can use that as a nice leveling point onto the lock, which, as I said, was Tyburn and Sam Whitelock. Um, Whitelock, I don't think there's much complaints. It's, it's quite an interesting one with him, given the start of the season. Everyone was pretty much writing him off, uh, saying, you know, he's passed it, his test career is done. And he's been the outstanding five lock in the world this year, in my opinion. So yeah, no, no real qualms there. If, if you had to pick an alternative, you know, guys like James Ryan started to come back to a good, really good form. Um, otherwise, someone like Johnny Gray has been good. 
But and I think the the Argentinian locks, Alamado, Petty, and Lavinini have all had their glimpses of goodness, but it's also been done by lots of silliness, um, which you know, just immediately excludes you from selection. But I think the you know the very glaring omission at, at lock is is obviously Etzebeth not featuring there. I mean, played I and mean, he's played pretty much every minute for the Springboks this year. I think him coming off the bench for Italy is probably some of the first minutes he's not played. And he's just been absolutely dominant in every single one of those minutes. So, you know, the fact that he's not there is a bit of a, a crime. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a similar crime in the loose boys that I'm sure Phil will discuss. Yeah, so uh, just straight into the eighth man, just Adi Sevilla not being there. Um, like I said, Adi was, for a lot of people, the player of the year. And to, to not even be, I mean, especially with loose forwards where they're not always as strict in terms of the very individual positions, you could have probably splashed him anywhere. And he's not even in the in the reckoning for team of the year, let alone player of the year. So that, I think, is just, um, yeah, they're missing out so much. Um, some of the other options uh, in the loose trio, we... Um, we mentioned, <laughs> you're going to have to help me out here, aren't I? I seem to have lost my list of players that we mentioned. <laughs> um, I think <clears throat> on open sides, Khaleesi and um, Argentinian Gonzalez were both, both had really strong years. Um, I think they were, you know, Khaleesi does the standard thing where he's consistently good and then has a couple of performances where he's just unplayable. Um, and I think this season he's probably increased that ratio of unplayable games relative to previous years. Um, I mean, last year we were talking about Artem as one of the best players in the Springboks um, and one of the best players in the world. And this year I think he's actually had a better year than he did last year, in my opinion. Um, and on the other side of the, the loose forwards, I don't know if I'd say that Matera has had the most dominant year he's had. Um, I still keep feeling like he's got more that he that he can give. Um but yeah, it's a bit trickier on the blind side. No one has quite stood out yeah. as much as, as on the open side. Um, but I think just an honourable mention to Caelan Doris should go out. Um, and, and probably Courtney Law was before, before we obviously got injured at the end of your tour. Yeah. The one guy who I also thought um, has more often than not in a losing effort this year, um, but every time I see him, I feel like he's improving, and especially in terms of his physicality, is uh, Rob Valentini. I think from where he was, especially like a couple of years ago, he's just coming on in leaps and bounds, and I think he makes a big difference to that Australian team, but not quite enough, obviously. They're still struggling. Yeah, no, Valentini is a very good shout. And then the other person that I forgot to mention is uh, Marcus Kramer. I mean, yes. yeah. I don't know how many tackles he's made this year, but it must be up there with, you know, world record um, for a season. And he was hitting, you know, 25 tackles a game for a while. Um, and, you know, those are dominant hits. <laughs> People were, were feeling feeling those a lot. So, I mean, Marcus Graham has also really developed into a top, top, top-tier player. Um, you know, so, so that actually, I mean, that, that during the rugby championship, there a lot of pundits were saying, well, the Argentinians are arguably one of the best loose trios in the world. Um, and I think that that's fair. But yeah, we can use that as a, as a launching pad into our nines and tens. Um, they've got Mr. Pont and Sexton. I think the, the easy call is Sexton. I, I don't think there's been another dominant 10 this year. Marcus Smith has kind of struggled to really make the same impact at test level. Intermax, I um, mean, similar to the Pond, hasn't reached the same highs as he had last year. Mwanga and Barrett dovetailed without any huge um, success. Finn Russell's come back strongly, but you know, kind of only really played at the end of the year here. 
um, and the Six Nations earlier and, and hasn't played consistently enough to to really nail his marks. So I think it's you know it's pretty clearly Sexton for ten. The nine jersey, you know, I think people are still hanging on to the grandiose of Dupont of the past. I don't think he's also been the best he's ever been this year. Um, and I think particularly the form that Aaron Smith was showing towards the end of the year means that he should at least get an honourable mention, if not, um, you know, the jersey ahead of Dupont. Yeah. Um, shall I move straight into centres? So the official, like you said earlier, we had um, Damien Dielander and Lukanya Am as the picks, a double South African pick, which I think surprised quite a few of us, given Am's not playing that many matches, but obviously with the nominee, so we knew. But then even, um, you know, Dielander, he's been playing well without setting the world alight. But when we were talking about it before, especially at that 12 position, there hasn't been too much of a, too much competition in that sense from a lot of uh, other players this year. So I think 13, there was more competition for Am. We mentioned um, Rico Iwani, who's been playing really well at as 13 for the All Blacks, and Gary Ringeros for Ireland. Um, at 12, not so much. So Jordy Barrett, when he's played there, he's only played a few games there now. I think he's been very good, but uh, he's been moved around between fullback and 12. And then I, I guess guys like um, Robbie Henshaw, uh, options but yeah i i think dialenda has been number one well and then that brings us onto the back three which is you know probably the most not contentious but has the most options i mean they've gone with corobetti who only played the first half of the year will jordan who also only played the first half of the year definitely didn't stomp his um self on the game as much as in the past um and then freddie stewart at the back i think freddie stewart has kind of made that jersey his own this year i think He's been head and shoulders the, the, the best fullback this year. Um, I think maybe if Billy played more games, because he's come back with really strong form, could be up there. Um, but I don't think I don't think too many other 15s have really dominated the jersey as much as that. There's been flashes, you know, guys like Stuart Hogg have been good in, in, in patches, but not. And Hugo Keenan's been consistent, but not spectacular. But I think on the wings, there's lots of room for discussion. Um, you know, I think Buffelli has been. Really good. Um, apart from just the goal kicking, I think his finishing where he's needed to. Um, he's obviously not quite as electrical exciting as we're doing, but I think he's been a really good option there. Um, Damien Penner obviously has been consistently good for the French. Um, left wing is potentially a bit trickier. I would argue, you know, someone like Kurt Lawrence actually deserves a shout just because of how, you know, he's taken hold of that Springbok jersey um, in the absence of Colby and, you know, his try scoring record has been really good since his debut at the start of this year. Um, and then someone like Mac Hansen, who's also uh, very new to the test scene, but has been consistently starting for Ireland and playing really, really well. It was evidenced by his you know, nomination for breakthrough. Anyone I'm missing at in the, the back three there? Yeah, I think you mentioned everyone. Maybe uh, just at fullback, um, he won breakthrough player of the year. So really good for Italy, Capuazzo also, um, just as, as an option, even though still young and coming through, he had a great year. Yeah, um, it was very frustrating when he scored against us, just you know, underlying, underlining that he is actually a very yeah. good player. <laughs> For sure, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think we can. That kind of covers our view of the World Rugby Awards, and we can use that as a yeah. We can jump actually into our status segment of winners and losers. Um, we've got a long list. There's a lot of rugby this weekend, um, 
and yeah, tried to catch as much of it as we could. So, Phil, who was your, your, your first winner for the weekend? Yeah, so I think I'm going to start with a game that I only saw a, little, a couple of the highlights for, but uh, a clear winner for me is Georgia, who managed to get their first ever win over Wales. Um, I think they've beaten Italy before, so it's not their first ever Tier 1 win, but maybe Italy don't count. First proper win. Didn't they, didn't they, didn't they beat them this year? Yeah, Italy. They beat Italy. Yeah, as I'm saying. So, yeah, it's like... So, I mean, it, yeah. It's two a, big it's, wins in one, one year. Exactly. Yeah. Coming thick and fast, but I think, you know, like, that sort of more historical precedent, beating a team like Wales just has a bit more significance than beating Italy, with no offence meant to Italy. So, I think this one is absolutely massive for them, especially, you know, in Wales. Um, being able to pull off a, a result like that just... If if this isn't going to um, tell people that expansion possibilities sort of need to be thought about much harder and need to happen, I don't know what is, but it's a great result for them and just so pleased to see it happening. Does this mean that Wales are going to get kicked out of Six Nations ahead of Italy because Italy beat, or does it depend if Australia can beat Wales? <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't depend on any of these things, but we should, as, <laughs> as we know. Um, Wales, I, I'd rather they... But I'd yeah. rather there be two Southern Hemispheres in the Six Nations with South Africa and Georgia. <laughs> yeah, well, we can hope and we can see. I mean, Georgia, if they keep improving as much as they have been, um, it won't be long before they're pushing the door down, um, even if they don't get an invite. So hope, long may it continue. Uh, yeah, it was, I was very stoked to, to see that win for Georgia. Um, both because I like to see Georgia win, but also because I like to see Wales lose. Um, and I think, you know, the way that they won it with a immense, massive monster traditional Georgian scrum, you know, to get the penalty at the end to take the win was just, um, you know, classic. <laughs> so it was yeah, very, very nice from that perspective to see that. Um, I think I'm going to jump into probably my, one of my biggest winners for the weekend, which was Finn Russell. Um, you know, obviously lots of drama in the Scottish squad him being initially admitted, coming back to the New Zealand game, playing very well. And yeah, this last weekend against Argentina, I mean, he was just doing mad shit. Like, I think a lot of it was very borderline in terms of the, the forwardness of some of those passes, but you know, they were blown and loud and, you know, they set Scotland off on you know, the path to a very, very big win. Um, I think Argentina... Did very well to hang in there for a long time. You know, I mean, they're down to 12 men and they still managed to score a try. Um, but yeah, the fact that, you know, I mean, Finn Russell, when he's on form, is, is very borderline unplayable. And when you pair him up with someone like Darcy Graham, who's, you know, like a Northern Hemisphere version of Colby, it's it's very tricky to keep that score low. Yeah, I mean, I think um, this sort of game, it was just perfect for Finn Russell. He, to be fair to him, even before. The, the player disadvantages really kicked in. He was already, you know, doing his crazy stuff. So it was just a game where he really put his hand up um, and, yeah, made his presence count, especially after, he, like you say, he wasn't initially picked. So can't see him not being picked going forward towards the World Cup now. Um, I, yeah, I think you touched on it, but I'll just mention my first loser then from that game, just Argentina's discipline. So they had a red card in the uh, after about 20 minutes. So that was Marcus Kramer. As good a year as he's had, that was just a, a dumb moment where it was pretty much, you know, 
straight into head, uh, shoulder straight into head contact at a ruck, which was also, it wasn't even a borderline one where it was, um, you know, that's all he could do. It was just, he had an option and he chose the wrong option and it was dumb. And then there were needless yellow cards. I think they had three after that. So the Argentine discipline, it's almost like a cliche, but it's also, it just keeps happening. So we're just going to keep on talking about it until they fix it up. Yeah, it was really frustrating because, I mean, Argentina obviously started their tour with such a good win over England. Um, and they came off the back of such a strong rugby championship, obviously beating Scotland in their um, incoming tour. You know, we, we really thought that this was setting up to be a really good year um, for Argentina. And they got pumped by Wales and then, you know, kind of really just let themselves down in this match against Scotland. I mean, you know, if you look at how competitive they were with being so few men down, they kept their players in the park. You really should have, would have expected them to to take the win. You would think, um, and yeah, it's kind of kind of a disappointment. But I don't think it's going to change the way anyone feels about Argentina at the World Cup. I think people know that Argentina are a very serious team, um, and you know, in a pool with just England as kind of the main rivals, like they very realistically could top their pool. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I think if you look where they are compared to Japan, just based on the latest results, who are also in their group, I think definitely far ahead of Japan, despite, you know, Japan at the last World Cup looking very good. They just haven't quite looked as good. Yeah, but maybe they're, you know, doing a long peak. I mean, I can't think, you know, it's not like Japan with, you know, knocking the lights out on the way up to the last World Cup. So um, they might just be timing their run very cleverly. Yeah. Um, but speaking of teams with a terrible disciplinary record and there's another southern hemisphere team starting with an a that falls into that category um so do you want to yeah. mention the english team there a little bit i mean I'll just australian. <laughs> australian yes yeah i was really disappointed um just because i think from a spec like i, I don't really care for australia i think you prefer australia to, uh, to uh, me so i didn't i just really... feel sorry for them now like i just kind of you know they're like i just feel bad shame they're like little kids and they're just trying they're trying their best but they're just not very good and you know it's just like yeah you want them to do well yeah I, I, I get that i wanted to see a good game of rugby and i feel like australia were the main reason why it wasn't a good game of rugby um to, to be honest like they were staying in the game and they i think what i said on one of the groups is that it seemed like they were doing enough to even you know um be the better team except for really really dumb penalties so they they had a disallowed try where it it was a perfectly clean try except for the fact that you know like three rucks ago completely off the ball someone did a neck roll like it didn't even have a material impact but because it's dangerous play and the neck roll they disallowed the try and then that same sort of type of penalty like neck roll i think happened three or four times again and um in the same half like I think the referee got a lot of flack, but, you know, the TMO was telling him, look, we've got another one of these. And the, well, it's not like he wasn't clear with the, the Australians either, yeah, to be fair. And Australia also, they were like, oh, the Irish, they're lying all over the ball, so that's all we can do. It's like, that doesn't make sense. That's not all you can do. You don't have to resort to deck rolls, you know. If, um, yeah. Like, you understand being frustrated when, you know, people are not letting you get clean ball and quick ball, but... It's just so silly. You can't um, just take the law into your own hands in those situations. Yeah. So, like, it is frustrating because I think even though um, when you, when I look at the team on paper, they, I don't think they have, like, one of the best Australian teams that, that, that we've seen in the last, you know, however many years. But they 
quite often than not, I think they play above their ability for me. But then they have the sort of they play well and they play like well in a well structured way. But then they're let down by the discipline side. So definitely for me, another loser. And that's two out of the four rugby championship teams um, just cost by their discipline this weekend. Yeah. Yeah, Australia in such a weird position at the moment. I feel like they've got this mix of experience and and talent, and their form guide is just so up and down. You know, I mean, I was kind of saying this last week, but like yeah. after losing to Italy, they're going to come out and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they beat um, Ireland, and they really almost did. I mean, they were you know kind of last play um, in it, and you know, obviously the Nick White disallowed try would have been been the difference. So it's. <sighs> It's a very, very weird uh, matchup. And, you know, I, again, wouldn't be surprised now if they got hammered by Wales. <laughs> yeah. Just, just yeah. given the fourth guard. But yeah. yeah, it, it feels like these are things that should have been sorted out by now. You know, these a lot, enough of these players have been in the system for long enough and Rennie's been in charge for long enough. And you know, something like discipline at the end of the day, that does fall on the coach, you know. Um, you've... You can't have your whole team committing neck rolls over and over and over. Like that's a coach tactic. Either it's a coach tactic or it's a, a not a it's a not coached not tactic. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like either the coach is telling them to do it or he's not blatantly teaching them to do something else. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. you know really worrying sign. Yeah, because I, I think the commentators mentioned, which I'm not sure that I agreed with, but the commentators were sort of alluding to that like in training they must be doing this because they it's part of like just the natural like it's not like they think about it and then go and do a neck roll so if they're doing this in training where they're trying to clear out that that's their almost natural clear out then they're not getting coached to not do it or no one's telling them this is wrong you can't do that in the match so i don't know if if i think that that's actually happening like they do it in training but i i don't know i think it's something like they try and turn the intensity up and they yeah it all goes wrong but coach color for sure being an Australian fan yeah. must just be so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sham, we should get Mitch back on the pod um, <laughs> after after next week game and just see see where his motivation levels are after the season and get his report card view for um, for next year. Because again, like they've had enough positive signs that I still wouldn't write them off for the World Cup. Like they can get a couple of things to click. They get back to Karevi. They get back to Craig Cooper. Suddenly, that's a really different team. You know, their forwards have stood up at times this year. Their backline has clicked and been really dangerous. I mean, you know, if you look at this backline, they had like 15 changes during the game. You're losing Paisami, um, and then they lost. Uh, who's another player they lost? Kellaway. Uh, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So after shifting Kellaway to, to 13, and they lose Kellaway, and they bring Drake Gordon on the wing, the tire has been jumping all over the place. I mean, he had a really good game. Um, you know, I think he's one of those players that's just got that talent and can yeah. just be really good occasionally. Um, but you know, it's, and despite all those changes, you know, they're defensively sound. They didn't let the Ireland score, um, and they, you know, really turned on the heat occasionally. But it's also weird that you've then got no Lalasia sitting on the bench for the entire game. Yes. Um, you know, when you've had two backline injuries, it, it it does just feel like. There's so much uncertainty and lack of faith in some of the players in that squad. Yeah, it almost feels like there's something else going on there. But they're also like on the easy side of the World Cup draw, so they if they don't, it feels yeah. like they almost don't even have to play that well, and they could find themselves like you know in a semi or a final. They just need. <laughs> I, think, I, mean, I think they're definitely a good shot for the semis. You know? 
Because only, so, as you said, they only really need to play one good game to make the semis. That's um, crazy. As, as opposed to South Africa, New Zealand, France, Ireland, who need to play like three good games to make the semis. And Scotland, even on that side, yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 um, that's a whole other rant about the World Cup yeah. tour. Yeah. I think we have probably ranted about before, but it still just irritates me that it's such a mess. Um, so you know, we'll we'll save that for another day. Uh, yeah. Speak, but you said that we've got already two out of two of the Southern Hemisphere teams were um, disappointing and were losers. Uh, do you want to make it three out of three? Yeah, I do. So as as you may have picked up if you've been listening closely, um, South Africa aren't necessarily just yet on losers this time, at least. But um, New Zealand, even though they got a draw at Twickenham, which in isolation I think wouldn't necessarily be the worst result in the world, especially with the All Blacks not quite um, as dominant as they've been. But for me, what makes them losers is that... Uh, they, yeah, they, it, they were almost controlling that game for, you know, 60, 65 minutes or so. And then to let it slip, I think um, England got very fortunate with the first try that they scored. Um, Will Stewart's first try, I didn't see a clear grounding and the refs decided that it was enough to overturn the decision. So I, I feel like they got fortunate with that. But still, it seems like, you know, they just almost... Um, let their guard down so easily and let in three relatively soft tries towards the end of that game um, to be in such a dominant position and then to give up a draw. So I think based on that, even though, like I said, it's not a bad result, uh, still going to have to unfortunately put New Zealand in the losers column this week. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, they're definitely a loser. I mean, you, you don't rush out to a you know, what 14-point halftime lead and then extend that you know to over 20 points going into the last quarter, I mean, the last 10 minutes, sorry. You know, you don't lose from that position. And most importantly, New Zealand doesn't lose from that position. And, you know, we've, we've seen New Zealand win when they're on the opposite end of that spectrum, uh, particularly against us. But, yeah, it's 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 very poor play. Um, and it kind of just is, is weird. It talks, I mean, like, what's happening there to in that squad for them to just kind of capitulate like that. Um, yeah. you know, is there lack of belief? Is the bench not good enough? Are they unfit? Um, are England just you know masters of timing their run? But you know even then, like you know they had three chances to to get their their house in order. The, the Kiwis, you know, they could have after the second try still regrouped and be like, cool, we've only got to survive here for two minutes. Let's like just get our shit together. Yeah. Um, it is a tough one. I mean, you can point to it, what, being a long year, end of the year, last, for them it's their last game, I think. But still, that's it's not really an excuse. Like this, It could be, if, if it's a World Cup final and you're tired and it's your last game, you can't concede and let tries in that easily at the end of a game. So they've got some work to do for sure, as we've been saying throughout the year, even when they've been winning handsomely. I think from all of us here on the pod, we still haven't, quite being convinced by their form despite um, improved results so I think for them next year they yeah before the World Cup they will need to see a big improvement if they're going to feel a bit more comfortable going in as real contenders yeah I mean at, at this stage do you see them beat Ireland in a semi-final quarter-final sorry <laughs> yeah qu- quarter-final um, to be honest 
Uh, I mean, I could, yes, but I think if they if you played ten times, uh, they would win like maybe three. So it would be like a seven to ten ratio in my head, the weird calculations that I'm doing. So I think they wouldn't that be favorites. That sounds about right, to be fair. I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd get on board with that. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's also hard to hard to know, um, and it's going to be super exciting, whatever happens form wise, just because I think the there there's uh, all those teams are close enough that it's going to make super exciting quarterfinals um, on the, on that side of the draw. And some very damp squid matches on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, probably, but we'll see. <laughs> Hopefully, Argentina can yeah like you said, come top of their group and, you know, make things a bit interesting with, like, an England-Australia quarterfinal. Um, yeah. But I think, I mean, I think not to, I mean, as much as it was great of England to come back at the end and, you know, those last 10 minutes were very impressive and showed a lot of self-belief and confidence and all of that's great. But, you know, how do they let themselves go 23 points or whatever it was down? Yeah. Um, like, they were completely out of that game for the vast majority of it. And they were really bad. They weren't just out of the game. Like they, uh, I think they were possibly worse than South Africa in that first match against Ireland in terms of like not showing anything, uh, in terms of like you know any sort of creativity and excitement and like never looking like they were going to do anything. Um, And again, it comes back to that like old question of are they were they holding back and were they like not trying to show anything which i don't think you can and i i'm still confused by it all but uh i think eddie jones is just has problems but he also has a, a team that is capable of playing really well as we saw in those last 10 minutes but he hasn't got it right for sure yeah i mean it kind of felt that in the last 10 minutes, they were just like, well, shit, we've lost. So Marcus Smith, just go and play and do your thing. I mean, we were chatting about it last week where I think someone brought out the stats that you know, kind of like 70 or 80% of the plays of England come through their, their nine or their 12. Uh, and Marcus Smith, who's you know, used to controlling a game and running the cutter from 10, is just not being involved. Um, yeah. And so maybe this was the thing. It's like they actually gave him the car keys finally for the last 10 minutes and he showed that they can actually play an attacking game. But until they, they bring him in more, yeah. then, I mean, Farrell and Youngs are not attacking-minded players. You know, they're going to try and pressure you to with a territory game, but they're not going to score many tries. And that's kind of been England's issue this year. I mean, if, I think apart from their matches against Italy and obviously managing to score three tries and very quick succession against All Blacks, they've really struggled to put points on the board against most teams. Um, you know, so again, how much of that is they're still developing and growing the game plan as Eddie Jones keeps claiming, or and how much of it is just they don't have a game plan to attack with? Uh, you know, yeah. Which is yeah, it's it's a interesting position for them to be in. Yeah, and I think just interesting um, was that when they started playing well, like you say, Marcus Smith really took control of it, but it was also when both Farrell and Tuilangi were off. Tuilangi, I thought was noticeably awful i mean farrell was still fine he was doing feral things but both of those players were off in those last 15 minutes um and i think that just allowed uh smith not just to be the controller and take reins but also just to have like better options outside him in terms of being able to yeah just like link together because it sometimes feels a bit stifling when you have players who aren't on your aren't on the same page yeah, well, I mean, exactly. Particularly if you've got a midfield of Farrell and Tuilagi, who's, you know, Farrell's not a creative player. Um, I mean, again, this is not knocking the guy who's a very good player, but 
he's not going to unlock a defense with great passes. Um, and then, on, you know, if you put your blunt instrument at 13, you know, then you really don't have much creation all the way out to the wings. Um, you know, so it doesn't make, you know, it's not a surprise that they're struggling to, to unlock defenses if you've got kind of two relatively blunt instruments at 12 and 13. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is a, a worry, I think, for them. If, they, if that's the center combination they see themselves going with into the World Cup. Um, but yeah, speaking of, of teams with a relatively blunt attacking uh, prowess uh, that kind of can pivot us nicely into this South African team, who, as we mentioned, for a change, weren't that blunt on attack. Um, you know, scoring eight tries against Italy was a, quite a nice return for a change. Um, yeah, what did you make of that? I think it was really encouraging. I mean, it's sometimes it's difficult, even as much as Italy have improved and you know played well against teams like Australia. Uh, it, I think it's far too easy for us to be like, oh, it's only Italy. We, um, you know, we haven't been able to do this against other teams. But you can only play what's in front of you. I think we saw a lot of progression, uh, which is always important in terms of, you know, from previous matches, what we're learning and what we're bringing through. Um, there were some really, really nice sort of uh, backline moves, not just like individual passes. There were a lot of good passes, but the way that they structured, even the first try that Orenza scored, um, it was really just well, well worked. Um, so I think I was really encouraged with the way that um, most of the backline played. The forwards, you know, did their thing. We always expected the forwards to outmatch Italy man for man, but as a pack. Uh, generally, and then having the reserves come on um, was always going to be tough for Italy. But I was most encouraged by the, yeah, that creativity that we were able to see in the backs. And I think for me, special um, praise for Libok coming off the bench and then really able to make a difference. I think it suited him in a game like this. Um, and he was able to throw a couple of passes which led, maybe not directly, but uh, were part of the um, tries being scored and I thought Vili also had a really good game he was just um, you know doing his things he's in pretty good form right now even for him um, so yeah just encouraged and then just lastly Arantz was um, scoring two tries and then setting up Reynach's one that was a really nice break as well so all in all pretty good pretty good yeah I think we, we've been seeing an evolution in the Springbok attack of this tour um, you know, kind of even in that first game against Ireland Yes, I know we didn't score much, but I think there were signs that we were doing more running with the ball. And I think, I mean, partially that's because we had Billy playing at fullback, which obviously brings a much better play or a player with much better vision and passing skills than you maybe got with Willemser at 10. Um, but yeah, so it was encouraging to see that that really come through and shine in this game. Um, you know, Billy's the last two games in France and now against Italy. I mean, he's playing everything is coming through him at 10. So, you know, when Willemsen went to the wing, you actually didn't really see much difference at all yeah. um, in terms of play. And I think that was also a really smart move by the coaches um, when they did bring on Willemsen, uh, sorry, bring on Lebarker's replacement for Colby, just putting Willemsen straight on the wing and not doing an entire backline reshuffle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that meant that we, we didn't lose as much attacking or defensive shape as we did, you know, when we, I think it was against Wales where we shifted everyone like one player out. Um, yeah. And that just made a mess of everything. So that was quite good. Um, did you, what did you make of Delendia 13? 
I thought he was pretty good. I like on in my mind, it's it works a lot better just because. Um, yeah, I, I I guess my sort of he's not my what I would consider like my favorite style of thirteen, but in in the Springbok um, system, I think he works well, and I would be very tempted to see more of him at thirteen. Obviously, hoping Am comes back. Um, Injury-free and able to put a good run of games together before the World Cup, just as as good as he has been. But I wouldn't hate the option of having, um, yeah, having Dielinda at 13. As uh, I mean, Krill was obviously good in the games that he's played so far, but I, I thought he was good. I thought he was better than perhaps than I thought he would be. What did you think? Yeah, same. And I think. I think Esther Hazen also had one of his better games in a book jersey for a while, um, yeah. uh, which is a, a good thing to see because if you can feel the a midfield of Esther Hazen and Delendi, that's a very scary thing for defences to have to deal with. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, those are two of the hardest running centres and hardest to bring down centres in world rugby. I mean, Esther Hazen was taking the ball and, you know, just taking like four defences to bring him down certain on some of his carries, which is, you know, obviously that that's dream um, space creation for the rest of the backline. So, yeah, it was it was really nice to see that. Um, and yeah, just to touch on your mention of of people bringing impact off the bench, I thought Etzebeth. I mean, it, it sounds obvious to say that you know he made a big impact off the bench, but you know it really was just so evident how good he is. Um, you know, kind of from the first moment he got on the field, he was doing stuff that was you know kind of game changing, and the way that he chased, kicks, tackles, you know, charged down, like he's just so present um, and impactful in, in kind of everything he does. Um, he, yeah, really just, I think that absence showed and it'll be, I'm very excited to see him going up against Itojo this weekend just so, you know, we can put that debate, not that it's a debate, but just put that nonsense to bed once and for all. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, like I, like you said, Itzabeth is just, he's been, his level of consistency has been high for so long now that I think, we're yeah we're really gonna feel it when he's gone i think um i think we, none of us are big fans of uh the two who started this weekend at lock uh, murat and ori but um just because i think there's such a massive gap between them and then it's a bit uh and it's maybe it's a little harsh on them maybe not because that maybe there are better options than those two or at least in our thinking but uh it doesn't help them that they have possibly the best player in the world coming off the bench and like outshining them <laughs> in the, you know, however many minutes um, they get. So, yeah. Uh, for me, Itzabeth is, he, he's always been good, but this year, just that level of consistency every single game has just been outstanding and like just so remarkable. Yeah. No, he, he is just in a class of zone and it's scary to think that he's, I mean, he's only 31, like he's still got. If he plays as long as Whitelock plays, like he's got a lot of years ahead of him and he doesn't show any signs of kind of slowing down. So it's a, a very scary prospect for the rest of the world at this stage yeah, if he keeps sure. um, going at that at that speed. But I think we can use it as a pretty good pivot um, into this week's games, having touched, having just touched on England and, and South Africa. Um, we're obviously playing England this weekend. Um, our team came out this morning. Nothing too surprising um, I think the biggest talking points are Evan Ruiz getting a start. Um, obviously, our French and English players aren't available. 
So you know, it's actually quite a long list of players that aren't available, which I'll just run through very quickly. Um, you know, this is a team you could make um, of players that are injured, which is uh, all, all unavailable. You've got Koch, Inyakani, Sneijman, Diago, Peter Steftitoy, Dwayne, Reinach, Pollard, Elton, Franz Fostein, Lukanyam, Colby and Corsi um, as World Cup winners. And then you've also got Visa and Esther Hazen, um, who are just unavailable. And then, you know, you can throw in other random guys like Elstad and stuff that, that obviously just aren't in the squad. But it's a pretty gnarly list of unavailable players. And just put out a team that's still as strong as that, um, you know, it's a very good sign for us. Yeah, I mean, that's a good um, show of our strength of, in, of depth, I think. Because um, I think the team that, yeah, like you said, it, it's pretty strong this weekend. Um, and I'm excited to see it. I think it's a, it's a good team. I think for me, the... Only two real decisions, or maybe three, that had to be made. So, Ruiz ahead of probably Quacher, I think, was maybe slight favorite to start, just given that he's played more. But it's nice to see Ruiz get a start and get a first game, especially against a team like England. I guess the the choice of the front rows, which way they were going to do it, was another option. And I'm happy, I, I think, just having... Um, Ox, Bongi, and Malherba as starting three is always a good thing. And then, given the box performance last week, I think the other decision was, are they going to stick him at, in a 10 and give him a start or not? And I think they've gone for the safer option, which is keeping Willemse at 10, um, Lebok on the bench, which I guess I'm happy with, um, especially you know with uh, Billy there at 15, and then Krill back at 13, seeing that Krill has been playing well. Um, so, yeah, mostly straightforward, like you say. Well, I mean, I think that there was room for maybe a bit of more experimentation, like if they'd wanted to, but I don't think any of it was necessary. And I think we still got quite a nice mix of, you know, as you say, guys like Ruiz in there. Marvin Ari's going to get a bit more experience on the bench. You've got um, Thomas Titoy coming in for, for a rare test and Marco has started, um, which I think is, you know, we've gone through essentially two fetches on the bench, which is interesting. Yeah, um, it seems, with, it seems with, like it's a sort of game plan that we've been doing it a lot recently with Dion yeah. Fury and Koch. Yeah, so I suppose it's maybe, maybe interesting that we've gone for Finn Stardin instead of Faree, um, given how well Faree's been playing. But uh, do, you, do you think that the double fetch on the bench plan will triple fetch, uh, quadruple fetch if you include uh, Marks and Kitsov? Um, you know, do you think we saw that England are strong in the last 10 minutes and this is just to kind of shut down any chance they have a quick ball? Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, I hadn't really thought of it, but it makes sense. <laughs> and um, it, yeah, it's it's a good plan, I think. Uh, just knowing that England will have an impact in the last, um, however many minutes it will be, 10, 15. This is a really strong bench, uh, starting with the front row, of course. And I think Thomas Dutoy, we haven't seen in a long time. He's he's also actually no slouch and a pretty good uh, fetcher himself. So. That that um, front row coming off the bench together with Finsardin and Smith, even though it's only five forwards on the bench this week, I think it's super strong. It's it's five, but it's its own bomb squad right there. Yeah. Um, and as you say, you know, Lebok and Moody can definitely inject themselves in and kick up the tempo as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's an exciting team. Um, how do you think the result's going to go this weekend if you had to put your money on it? Oof, uh, I don't know. I... I don't feel super confident, but I also, um, yeah, just based on England's performances, I would go for a very, very, very small South African win. Um, I've been um, thinking things are going to 
click a bit more. And last week against Italy, they did a bit more. But like I said, it was Italy. Um, so a, uh, a restrained and a tempered win, but uh, a win nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is a game our team will be very much up for, um, particularly after last year's loss. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we can pull it through and, and take the win. Um, I'm, I'm with you on that. I don't think we're going to dominate them, but I'd, I'd like to think we should be able to get get the wood on them um, with, you know, a tight but, but yeah, still the result falling our way. Um, that would be, that'd be good. Um, you know, the other match coming up this weekend as well as Australia, which we briefly mentioned. Oh, yes, I have no two. idea which, yeah, it's only those <laughs> two, and I have absolutely no idea how to call that one. Oof, I mean, as bad as bad as Austra- uh, Australia have been, especially discipline-wise, like they, I don't think they have ever even come close to losing to Georgia. I mean, they probably haven't played Georgia very much, um, and it, it does seem like they just need to, you know, just switch a few things, just stop doing, stop. Neck rolling. It's not that difficult. Just <laughs> stop doing that in, in the ranks. <laughs> um, so I I would go for Australia. Um, but at the same time, like you said, they're up and down. Wales are also, you know, as bad as it looks to lose at home to Georgia. They are the type of team who can just grind out a result and really just like crunch it up and slow it down like we see it happens against the Springboks so often. So it's a tough one to call, but I'd go for Australia. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if we could end the tour with two Southern Hemisphere clear wins. Um, maybe put a bit of put a gloss on the, the uh, an overall, I suppose, disappointing set of results from a Southern Hemisphere point of view. But you know, I mean, I, I as you as you say, it, it, this one can really go either way. And I, I don't know which way to call it. Um, but my hope will be on Australia. Uh, it does feel weird to to, to be self-described as an Australia sympathizer now. Um, <laughs> but, I suppose that's the camp that I've made for myself now. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think if we've kind of covered everything we need to do, I think we can wrap up there. Um, yeah. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you all next week. Cheers. Cool.